In recent years, the practices, traditions, and liturgy of the American church has drastically changed. Things like stained glass windows, pews, and altars have been replaced by TVs, lights, padded seats, and stages. Ministers who used to wear vestal robes now deliver messages in skinny jeans using iPads. It's not that churches that embrace non-traditional modern methodology have moved away from orthodoxy or the authority of scriptures. To make matters all the more complex, it's actually more historic mainline traditional denominations who have done that in an embrace of progressive theology, all while holding on to the liturgy and traditions of the past. Many American Christians have reported feeling a bit stuck. Some modern non-traditional churches feel more like entertainment for teenagers in their presentation, yet they're sticking to the orthodox doctrines of scripture. Some historic traditional liturgical churches present a worship experience full of reverence and beauty, rich with tradition and history, yet they've moved away from Christian orthodoxy into something else. How do we understand the place of Christian tradition, practices, and spiritual disciplines in corporate worship? Is it possible to find a church that holds corporate worship services that are full of substance, truth, depth, reverence, and intentionality? Welcome, everybody, to the Beers and Bible Podcast. My name is Josh, and here I am hanging out with my good buddy, Gabe. Hmm. Gabe, how you doing, man? Doing great. Doing great. It's uh, the middle of the workday here. Got a little window opportunity where I can yeah. jump on the podcast. It's been a busy week. Got a lot of stuff going on. Officiating a wedding this Saturday. So Wow. Look at you. To that. So just doing all the premarital counseling and rehearsal rehearsal dinner that kind of stuff so but i'm excited yeah man excited for them but yeah how are you i'm good we're both on our lunch break so it's good to Mm. break away for a little bit and do a we should rename the the podcast like lunch with josh and gabe yeah lunchables have you ever the other day i was searching in the the podcast app on on the iphone Mm -hmm. it's amazing how many podcasts there are that are named something along the lines of beards in bible like that hey, really there, threw me off. Yeah, there is one called Beards and Bible. Yeah, there's like, like a us. few. There's like there's like yeah. two beards in a Bible. There's beards in Bible. There's Bible beard. Like there's <laughs> I, Bible and beard. I, I want I want to um, suggest we do a royal like just cage match. Last royal rumble. Standing. Yeah, royal rumble. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I think a ton of podcasts came out during the pandemic, and I think the Beards mm-hmm. and Bible one. Was just called Beers and Bible. It wasn't called Beers and Bible podcast. So I think we mm-hmm. we own the trademark for Beers and Bible podcast. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I did look at the dates. I mean, they mm. were like, uh, you know, they were they were started and created after we did. But I mean, mm, yes, yeah. it's not a big deal. I mean, whatever. To say you know? imitation yeah. is the highest form of flattery. Mm. Yes, that's what I've always heard. Yeah, but good for them. Good for them. Yeah, good good job. It's cute little cute little Beard and Bible podcast. That's funny. Yeah. Well, let's jump in because you and I are on our lunch break and uh, it's a big topic today. So this topic was suggested via a listener email. We love getting listener or viewer emails. So thank you guys who send in questions and who email us. Let me take a sip of my Pellegrino water before I read. Pellegrino, mm. the essence of life. 
they're not our, they're not our sponsor but you know <laughs> i wish i wish they were if you're listening mr pellegrino hmm. Mm. Mm. all right here's our email that was sent in josh and gabe thanks for what you guys do been listening to the show <clears throat> nice things nice things nice things thank you one area i have been hoping to see if you could do a topic on is Messianic Judaism and Gabe's experience in the faith, specifically along the narrative of spiritual practices and traditions. Here's some background. My family and I have explored various churches due to moving from my job. Having attended a few different Protestant churches, <clears throat> non-denominational Baptist, Nazarene, Lutheran, we frequently discuss the topic, traditions, practices, spiritual disciplines, and frankly, the question of why do modern churches not look like old churches? In this thought process, I think many Christians are left treading water, when it comes to spiritual disciplines, reverence for God at church, and traditions. Should we have pews, stained glass, and altar communion every Sunday? Observe a Sabbath? Dress nicely for church? Should the pastor wear a robe? Personally, we find our family stuck between choosing the Verizon store turned church that adheres to scripture with minimal tradition, or the traditional church that has since deemed themselves progressive, for lack of a better word. Ignoring the dilemma of declining mainline denominations and the rise of non-denominationalism, I think many modern Christians fall into this nebulous realm of, well, nothingness. We sort of take communion. Baptism is big depending on your denomination. Sabbath would be great if you have time. Prayer is generally private except for dire circumstances. Do we talk about Passover? Stained glass is expensive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so basically what this person is asking is, <clears throat> I would love to hear a show on tradition, practices, and spiritual disciplines. Personally, I'd love to hear Gabe's view on it from the lens of practices within the Messianic uh, tradition. And then there's a whole slew of questions that he threw in there. So, uh, yeah, this is from, the guy's name is Craig. So, Craig, thank you for the question. Thank you for listening. Um, Gabe, I sent this over to you, man. What was your first reaction when I sent this hmm. email over to you? It was some excellent questions and yeah. one that is definitely on a collective scale kind of plaguing the Christian church right now is when we gather, what does it look like? What do we do? Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> How do we answer that question? So yeah, a lot of people have, and especially people in like our generation, Josh, like millennials and Gen Zs, uh, we've grown up in environments that are very devoid sometimes of um, tradition. And then some of us spin off into wanting a faith tradition that is that is full of different traditions and, and kind of ancient practices and stuff. So, sure, myself, my, I would say myself included in that. Um, yeah, but that's not the sole reason I've been searching that. But yeah, it's definitely, definitely interesting. No, and I, <clears throat> I feel like his email kind of captured what many people mm -hmm. have expressed to me over the years of feeling. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a key statement in his email. I think the key statement is he said, I feel as though there are a good number of young Christians seeking a faith that is scriptural, substantive, and reverent to God. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's <clears throat> that's like the key the key issue at hand. Like I, I talk with folks who just want to have a good solid biblical reason for why the church they attends does things the way that that church chooses to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think the the reverent part is really important too because a lot of serious Christians are looking around at how a lot of churches are doing services and worshiping. 
and they see a lot of irreverence. Like right. you sent me this Instagram, you sent me this Instagram reel of a guy <laughs> preaching. Sorry, you're taking a drink of water as I'm sharing this. <laughs> Don't spit it out. Ah, so I'm good. This this pastor is zooming back and forth in front of his congregants preaching. Pros- seems like it's prosperity kind of gospel. Yeah. But he's zooming back and forth on a hoverboard. So this guy's wearing like a blue <laughs> suit and tie and he's going back and forth on this hoverboard and just preaching. But yep. there's like, you know, just a lot a classic example of just a lot of weird, irreverent stuff going on in churches today. Yes. That people were like, you know what? I'm just kind of tired of this. I want something genuine. I want something reverent. Right. I want something meaningful. And if it's ancient, if it's really, really old and connected to the Bible in some way, that that makes it all the more worthwhile to me. Yeah, no, hundred percent. There. Um, by the way, if you just want a good laugh, <clears throat> there's plenty of uh, Instagram uh, accounts you can follow of hilarious <laughs> things like that. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I think most Christians just kind of want to know, like, if the stuff their church is doing on a regular basis in corporate worship, if that's being done for a good reason. Like, mm-hmm. to understand this issue, though, I think we've got to do some work and understanding, like, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a big churchy and theological word in there. So here's the word, ecclesiology. Mm-hmm. Ecclesiology. Mm. So do you know what ecclesiology is? You're a smart guy, you do. Yeah, so I know the suffixology is a study of, and mm-hmm. the Greek word ecclesia is church or assembly, so it'd be like the study of assembling together. Yeah, bingo. You're a fart smeller. I mean, smart filler. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, mm. <clears throat> speaking of reverence, um, <laughs> so in ecclesiology, there are two principles connected to corporate worship. And I think to understand like why churches do what they do, you have to identify how do they understand corporate worship and what we're permitted to do by scriptures in corporate worship and what the scriptures would say about corporate worship. So there's two principles and depending on the church you attend, they'll follow one of these principles or the other when it comes to their ecclesiology, their understanding of church. So the first principle is called the regulative principle. And this maintains that scripture gives specific guidelines for conducting corporate worship services and that churches can't add anything to those guidelines. Hmm. So they see the scripture as almost like a manual given to us for worship. And you can't do anything beyond that manual. So some churches who are following the regulative principle in worship they won't use musical instruments because they will say, well, there is no New Testament command or example that would warrant us to use instruments during our worship. So all of our worship has to be a cappella as we sing. Okay. So that's the regulative principle. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. The second is the normative principle and that's the idea that that anything not expressly forbidden in Scripture can be used for corporate worship. So the regular principle sees the Scripture almost like a manual. you got to go with what's in the manual. The normative principle sees the Scripture like a stoplight or a no trespassing sign, right? You, you mm-hmm. can use a lot of freedom, but there's certain things you can't do. And so normative principle churches feel totally free to use things like drama, special music, movie clips, PowerPoint presentations. Uh, they can do that because that's not forbidden in scripture. 
And people who kind of hold to this principle of corporate worship will point out that every church and every culture across church history has expressed worship differently, even in Bible times. And kind of one of the big differences between the regulative principle and the normative principle is that the regulative principle sees the Bible as kind of a strict code of conduct, while the normative principle is more like, you know, these are just kind of principles you can follow. And uh, both believe in the Bible, both believe the Bible speaks to what we must do as we gather for worship, but both of them kind of see, you know, what the Bible is telling us about worship kind of different. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Do you think all denominations are self-aware of which category they fall in? No, not at all. I think some, I would say regulative mm-hmm. principal churches are very aware of this and can often proudly mm-hmm. quote that they are. Mm-hmm. But I think most evangelical churches are not. They don't even, well, I, I don't know. I mean, what do you think? I mean, do you think they're self-aware of it? Yeah, I think that, I think you're right. I don't think a lot of evangelical denominations or congregations are aware of which category they fall in. I think they just, they they show up to a church service and they like the flow of it. And it's kind mm-hmm. of familiar, but it is, oddly enough, it's kind of loosely based off of a lot of regulatory mm-hmm. or regulative worship services, but it's a little bit more uh, flexible, maybe is the word. Right. Um, <clears throat> yeah. yeah. So some examples, like the regulative principle, you would find out in quite a bit of Reformed churches. Mm-hmm. Um, the Church of Christ, specifically the Acapella Church of Christ that you see a lot in my part of the country in Tennessee, Kentucky, and places like that, they are like dogmatic about the regulative principle and insist that their way of doing it is the only way to do it. And if you're doing any other way, you're not a true church. And I'm not mm-hmm. exaggerating. That's truthfully what I've heard Church of Christ people tell me. <laughs> um, liturgical traditions will will claim to follow the regulative principle. So Catholicism, Lutheranism, Episcopalian, Orthodox, etc., uh, however, a lot of their corporate worship practices kind of lack biblical precedence, and a lot of them are based more on tradition. Mm-hmm. And so, but but they will say we're we're following the tradition of the church fathers passed down to us. Um, <clears throat> normative principal churches would be, I, I would say, most modern American evangelical churches. I'd say most Pentecostal churches are normative principal churches. Uh, non-denominational churches, a lot of African American churches. And the entire seeker-sensitive and attractional model is built on the normative principle. So if we didn't have the normative principle, we would not have those hilarious Instagram accounts of churches with pastors riding around on hoverboards or <laughs> the pastor. Have you ever seen the guy up on stage? Point. Yeah, yeah, that one's funny too. Have you ever seen the guy up on stage who's roller skating during praise and worship? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and the caption is every church needs a praise skater i'm like yes yes they do yeah. a yeah. holy roller yeah oh there uh, you go yeah so uh yeah both of these i would say i mean you could find a good solid biblical jesus honoring church from either one of these camps be it a regulative mm-hmm. principal church or a normative principal church but i think both can be abused so, Gabe, you want to talk about regulative abuses and how a regulative principal church could abuse their understanding of this? Yeah, yeah. So, churches that claim to follow the regulative principle often disagree with each other as to what exactly is prescribed by the New Testament and what isn't. 
Church of Christ obviously disagree with reform over instrumental music. And some regulatory principled churches disagree over head coverings mm. and the men raising holy hands in prayer, for instance. Um, regulative churches can easily become legalistic and pharisaical in its strict rejection of anything not found in the Bible. And it also doesn't account for the many aspects of a worship service not dealt with in the Bible, such as length of service, uh, instrument use, how ministers and worshipers should dress, how much technology technology should be used and employed, and dozens of other questions uh, not ap applicable in Bible times. Um, so sometimes the fruit of these regulatory principled churches in spirit is spiritual pride and uh, sectarianism. Like they will say, we're the only church doing it right, or we're the only true church, like you mentioned with the uh, Church of Christ. Yeah. Have you been in any churches like this? Hmm. Probably, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been, I've been in, you know, a smattering of different regulatory, regula I keep saying regulatory, regulative churches. Um, but yeah, definitely, definitely I've, I've seen that abused. Have you seen more of the spiritual pride or you've seen more of the like, hey, we've cornered mm. the market on exactly how this is supposed to work, even though truthfully, things like how long a service should be and how exactly you yeah. should dress. I mean. Yeah, yeah, I've seen, I've seen both. Um, I've seen and been in churches where, you know, there was only like a piano that was allowed. And I remember the pastor railing on churches that have drum sets in them, uh, things like that. Or sometimes you get... Um, you know, people that allow drum sets, but you have to stick to a certain um, hymnal, for instance, and you can't sing any songs outside of that that library of hymns that are, you know, deemed kosher by church leadership. So, yeah, I've seen I've seen quite a bit of stuff going on. Well, and some some of it, it seems like people will say, well, if this is the regulative principle we find in scripture, but the truth is, it's not really what you find in scripture. It's more what you find in tradition of this mm. particular tribe, right? Mm -hmm. So you mentioned mm -hmm. hymns. Like the truth is the, the Bible says, speak to each other in Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so you see some regulative principle churches that say, okay, so anything written before 1850 is a Psalm, hymn, or spiritual song, <laughs> right? And it's like, yeah. I, I don't know if that's true. I don't know where you got that, but um, yeah. Yeah. And what's funny about a lot of those old Church of God hymns and stuff, like we sang growing up in, in some of these God churches, is like those were all repackaged and repurposed like saloon bar songs right 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 right. yeah, <laughs> yeah they just change the lyrics too and it's so funny that but those are like in some churches and according to some pastors you cannot deviate from those you know so yeah. it's funny that is interesting so um normative abuses i think again we have our very hilarious instagram <clears throat> accounts to show us normative abuses i mean the obvious is that it just kind of opens the door to worldliness in an effort to try to incorporate culture and reach people and mm -hmm. gatherings can kind of lean into just being entertainment based. Uh, it can just sort of slide into silliness and childishness and irreverence. And it can just kind of turn into a production that looks nothing like what a new Testament church is supposed to look like if that church isn't careful. So, Again, we're talking about the abuses, right? Not every regulative principle church is like that. Not every normative principle church is like that. But personally, and Gabe, I don't know how you feel about it, <clears throat> but I would say a combination of both of these views. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, mm -hmm. that avoids the extreme of either. 
So you, you're not legalistic mm-hmm. or pharisaical or, you know, uh, sectarian or so proud to think you're the only ones doing it right. But at the same time, there is a level of reverence and respect and seriousness and intentionality about things that happen as you gather for worship. So, uh, Gabe, what would you say like the goal of a worship gathering would be? Are there any like scriptures that speak to that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There are some, um, well, so the number one goal is obviously to worship the creator, right? And to worship the creator with other people. Um, and Paul says in first Corinthians 14, he says, everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Some verses we can pull off of to kind of structure our worship services off of would be things like first Timothy 413. Paul says to Timothy, there should be like public reading of scripture. Second Timothy 4.2, there should be the teaching or the preaching of that scripture. Um, Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16, Paul is saying, you know, to sing hymns and spiritual songs. So, so far we have singing, uh, we have reading of the word, we have teaching, expound, expounding upon the word. Matthew 21.13 and 1 Thessalonians 5.17 describes corporate worship being a, a time and a place for prayer, corporate prayer. And then um, Matthew 28.19 and 1 Corinthians 11.23-26, also there should be a celebrating of the Lord with two ordinances, which is like baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, you know, and, and you know, we have here in the notes, you put there wouldn't be any specifics given on how often or exact method used. But um, the way, so the way we structure it just in our congregation is we look in the book of Acts and there's believers that are gathering together and they're breaking bread. So one of, the way we kind of implement that is um, we we um at the end of every service we do what's called like uh, it's called in hebrew kiddush where you say a blessing over the fruit of the vine and the the bread and a different person makes bread every week and brings it and so it's it's almost like communion it kind of predates the concept of communion a little bit yeah. and then we all have a, we all have lunch together we have potluck lunch together so hmm. the okay. meal is kind of elevated um through this ritual and it's saying you know we're we're fulfilling this kind of checking off all these boxes we're praying together we're singing, we're reading the Bible, we're teaching about the Bible, and we're breaking bread. Yeah. Um, if you want to call that the Lord's Supper, if you want to call that, you know, an ordinance, so be it. But yeah, yeah so that's that's kind of with the Bible, kind of when you get a kind of a picture of our corporate worship, that's some of the parameters there, some of the right. things that some boxes we need to check, basically. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would say too, like the goal given to us in scripture is, you know, Ephesians four says that as we gather, we're to equip <clears throat> the saints for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity of the faith and the knowledge mm-hmm. of the Son of God. And we become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So one of the reasons we gather as a church, uh, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Mm-hmm. So for the people of God to be discipled, to help them grow in spiritual maturity so they can go out into the world and, live their lives displaying the character of Christ. And so like there has to be some element of, Hey, you're growing, you're getting fed, you're getting discipled through this gathering. This is helping you grow in the knowledge of the son of God and become mature. Right. So like a church should be doing that. Um, Hebrews ten twenty four says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, 
but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So another kind of goal and reason for us to gather is to spur one another on toward love. So Mm -hmm. love for God, love for other people to encourage each other. And so like the Bible gives us, those are kind of the, the things the church should be doing. A corporate worship church, a corporate worship service needs to have these things. Like you said, reading the Bible, preaching the Bible, singing, praying, celebrating the Lord's supper, baptizing believers, all those things. So like, as long as the church is, is doing that, I would say, you know, equipping the saints for ministry, encouraging each other and love for Christ and each other. They're, they're, you know, following those things the scripture gives us. I don't think we can be legalistic about the exact methodologies and practices and disciplines that a church uses. Like, I think we need to be intentional about them. Like asking the question, how do, how do these help us with the practices giving in scripture? Do these help us achieve these goals for corporate worship? But I don't think we can be legalistic and pharisaical with them. What do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, within a local assembly, there's pastors and elders who have kind of the autonomous authority to say, yeah, we don't really want you up on the stage roller skating. You know, <laughs> that seems to be a little bit distracting, yes. um, even though that's not explicitly forbidden in scripture. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to go ahead and make the judgment call on that, that yeah, you roller skating during praise and worship, you know. So yeah, th- within those parameters, there is, there's also this, we can play things case by case because if we're structured in a biblical way, we can we can also say, no, let's not do that, you know, or yeah, yeah let's, let's implement that right. into our services. Yeah. I personally think we're free to use forms of musical worship. So I don't think the Bible gives specifics about the kinds of songs, hymns, and spiritual songs that we play. Right. I don't think they have to be, mm-hmm. you know, okay, well it's 20 years old or older, so we can use it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're free to use PowerPoints and video graphics and technology if they are a part of those biblical practices. So if they're helping us worship God through singing, if they're helping us teach the Bible, um, if they help us achieve the biblical goals of worship, I I personally think we're also free to dress in whatever way we choose as long as it's culturally appropriate as being honorable Mm -hmm. to the Lord and to other people. And so I think here's where we get into the tricky realm, like, what dress is considered appropriate or not, I think is, is pretty cultural in its application. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, in yeah. Your- and I think, I think that's when, when any denomination or leader or pastor gets into uh, splitting hairs or codifying like dress codes and stuff, I think we've lost kind of the heart of, of what the Holy spirit is trying to do and conform us into. Um, yeah. I think, I think I, I, t- I just tell people coming to our congregation, if you're putting on some clothes and you w- have a moment where you wonder if it's modest enough, just change your clothes, you know, just yeah, put on sure. more modest yeah, yeah, clothes. Yeah, yeah. Cause the goal, the goal is like, we don't, we don't want to bring any attention to ourselves in this time, but at the same time, we don't want to sit here and codify some kind of dress code, you know, put your hands down to your sides. And if it's the skirts below your fingertips, like, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to go there. Now, obviously there are times as elders and pastors where you maybe need to pull someone aside and say, Hey, Hey, like, you know, those Daisy Dukes you're wearing, <laughs> right? <laughs> I have to get on to some drawing... of my elders for those Daisy Dukes. So yeah, I mean, it's, it comes to a point listening. where, mm. not, 
I think that's kind of a baseline of a lot. Like the roller skating guy is this mm-hmm. is this robbing attention and glory from the from the one to whom deserves it all, especially during this time of corporate worship. Agreed. Amen. <clears throat> so yeah, I think those two principles. Why do churches do things the way they do? Well, they either see the things given in scripture as a manual that they're trying to get as close as possible to following, or they see what's given to us in scripture is here's some principles and here's like a stoplight that says you can't, you can't do this. But beyond that, we have the freedom to worship the Lord, however we choose to. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of the big broader answer to that. Um, but Gabe, um, our listener wanted to know like, why, why did you in particular find yourself in a messianic Jewish congregation and why? Yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah, I'm not Jewish. Um, you know, not, no one in my family as far as I know is Jewish, but I've always wanted and had this longing to explore kind of a ancient expression of the Christian faith. And when I look at the book of Acts, for instance, you know, majority of the early earliest followers, at least while the canon was still open and being written, were all Jews uh, who continued to the best of their ability to attend their local synagogue and um, practice the Jewish faith with the addition of belief in Jesus as their Messiah, the Messiah that was promised to Israel. So um, I kind of use the analogy of like the Mississippi River, for instance. Um, if you've ever been in New Orleans in that area and seen the Mississippi River, you would not want to drink that water. If you ever go up to like Minnesota uh, and Wisconsin and the Mississippi River that far north, you would be okay with drinking that water. It's very clean. It's very clear. So I looked at my faith and the expression of my faith kind of like that, like I want to go as close to the headwaters as possible. When Christ ascended into heaven, I want to know like, what did his apostles, what did his followers go and do and how did they corporately worship? Because I want to, I want to do that. And so as I started getting into Messianic Judaism and, uh, and, and observing it, I really found deep connection and fulfillment in that and answered a lot of those questions because there are a lot of traditions. Um, some of them are rooted in entirely rooted in scripture. Some of them are just entirely rooted in Judaism. But I gained a better appreciation for a lot of the teachings of Jesus, his life, his ministry, and more understanding and clarity from some of the things um, as he's as he's teaching them. So yeah, just again, in a nutshell, that's kind of what my motivation was, was just to kind of get back to um, kind of the, the, the foundations of our faith and What's interesting about Messianic Judaism, though, is it's kind of a new thing. It's an old thing, but it's a new thing. And so it's um, it's kind of a, a reborn movement, probably in the past, um, kind of came out of the Jesus movement, hmm. probably the past 50 years or so. Um, a lot of Jewish believers uh, began to um, explore both their um, cr- uh, Jewish roots as being ethnic Jews, but also embracing uh, belief in Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. And uh, what came out of that, and, and, and also kind of born out of a, a desire to want to um, evangelize the Jewish populations, what, what was born out of that were, um, were Messianic Jewish congregations, which really kind of started to explode in the 80s and 90s. And then in addition to that, a lot of curious Christian Gentiles kind of stumbled in their doors and say, what's this all about, you know? So that's, you know, I'm one of those curious um, Gentiles who are looking at the Messianic faith and saying, ah, there's something deep, there's something ancient here. But at the same time, there's a joy, there's, there's um, you know, 
the full recognition of Jesus as Savior and as Messiah. Yeah. So I really like that. And yeah, it really resonates with me. Huh. That's awesome, man. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I was just going to ask you just a couple of follow-up questions on that. So do you think within that particular tribe, um, and this isn't a gotcha question, I'm just asking because I'm curious, mm-hmm. is it a temptation yeah. sometimes to look at the traditions and almost feel spiritually superior because of traditions versus faith in Christ? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I would say with any any expression of faith that does that. Um, so for instance, uh, at our services, we have uh, like 30 minutes of 30 to 40 minutes of like praise and worship music. That's just kind of like, you know, typically what you would see in a church, but then mm-hmm. something very different that we do is um, we have about 30 minutes of liturgical prayer from a prayer book that's in both English and in Hebrew, which is very uncommon for, you know, especially if you're like an evangelical or something. Sure. So yeah. And we have these prayers, we pray them every single week. They're actually often sung in Hebrew and yeah, sometimes you get to a point where you're like, okay, um, you know, these, these, these prayers are good and beautiful and ancient. It's prayers that Jesus maybe would have been praying in the synagogues as well, or his followers would have prayed. So sometimes you get this kind of this air of superiority, like uh, every church needs to be doing this. Mm. But, um, but yeah, sometimes you have to kind of detach from that and say, no, this isn't, this isn't a commandment in scripture that we say all these prayers, they, they're good. But at the same right. time, there's a danger in that they become routine and they can become just from rote memory and we kind of sure. lose the intention behind them. Yeah, man. Well, thank you for answering that graciously. I mean, I, <clears throat> again, I mm-hmm. wasn't trying to make yeah. that as a gotcha question because I do think that that can become mm-hmm. a pitfall you step into no matter your tradition, right? Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have to be that you're in the Messianic tradition. I've seen Catholics say certain things, you know, that they're the only ones doing it right because they have <clears throat> these liturgical traditions that they follow. And again, some regulative mm-hmm. principle churches that, you know, say they're the only ones doing it right because they're doing it a certain way. But I think we've got to be a little bit like self-aware about the place of traditions. Traditions are good and they're awesome mm-hmm. and they're beautiful and they're rich, but there's a difference between the teachings of scripture and the traditions that we follow and kind of knowing the difference and being self-aware of the difference is really, really important. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you want to look so at Josh? Yes. Share your story about how you landed <laughs> in your church and why. <laughs> well, anytime people ask me what's my church tradition, like what I came up through, that's a really hard one for me to answer because we were in mainly Protestant evangelical churches growing up. And then we ended up in a kind of Wesleyan charismatic style church. It was actually an evangelical Methodist church, which was a really small Wesleyan denomination. Hmm. And then we spent some time in the independent fundamental Baptist church. We, that was Hmm. some good years. I Hmm. said that sarcasm. Um, And then you and I met at a Pentecostal Christian college where during my time at that Pentecostal Christian college, I attended the uh, PCA church that you and Stacy later got involved in, mm-hmm. which was Trinity, right? That was the name of that church? Mm-hmm. Yep. So, yeah, man, I, I kind of was like all over the place. 
And one of the things that it just always bothered me, no matter which tribe that I ended up in, was like the the sectarianism and the spiritual superiority. Mm. Like it just, I would hate going to churches where everybody's talking about Jesus and reading the scriptures and all of a sudden there's a sermon that comes out called Why We Are Wesleyan mm. or Why We Are Calvinist or Why We Are Pentecostals, mm. you know? Mm. And then in the independent fundamental Baptist church, it was, everybody's going to hell but them. Right. So it was just like this, I don't know, man, this heavy, 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 heavy emphasis on traditions. And it just seemed to bother me as a young dude. Like when you read first Corinthians, Paul says, why are you saying I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos? Like Paul didn't die for you. Apollos didn't die for you. Like you're, you belong to Christ. Right. Mm-hmm. And that kind of spiritual arrogance and sectarianism just just haunted me and just bothered the snot out of me. And I found myself just repulsed by it. And I just wanted a place where you could open the Bible. You could read it, talk about what it meant, what it said, what we were supposed to do. And um, I found that in some way at the Experience Community Church that I'm a part of now. And um, I also found just like a, a really refreshing take on like the place of um, scripture. Because mm-hmm. I grew up in a lot of traditions where that people take one or two verses and just read the verse and then talk about whatever it is they wanted using those verses as support for it. And I just kind of felt like scripture should be given more reverence and authority in a worship service than one or two verses in a TED talk. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that was really the attraction there. And then um, the experience community took communion every single week. And there was like this holy and reverential moment at the end of every service of taking communion together. And I thought, man, that's, that's just beautiful. The fact that you could go and, you know, study scripture really exhaustively uh, worship the Lord through singing and then take communion every week. Like that just feels really special and reverential. And so, yeah, so that's where Jenny and I landed. And 13 years later, I'm now pastoring a campus of the experience community. So that's kind of initially what attracted me to that. So very cool. Now you get to ask me like a gotcha question. Ask me, come on. Mm. Come on. I don't know. Come I, on. I, I think of one. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever get smelly pits while you're preaching on stage? <laughs> yes. Next mm. question. <clears throat> Are you not going to ask yeah, me, like, do, does it ever feel uh, mm. not reverential to preach in blue jeans and T-shirts or have a I, band with a drum set and I don't know. stage do lights? You feel like I need... Are you, do you feel like I need to placate your conscience by asking that question? And giving up <laughs> well, I mean, that's kind of the question that this guy sent in. It's like, yeah, hey, yeah. some of these liturgical churches feel really reverential and holy and amazing. Mm-hmm. And some of these more modern churches feel just really like it's a form of entertainment. Yeah. And so I think the criticism sometimes that we get as a more non-traditional modern church is, I mean, why don't you, why, why do you just preach in blue jeans? Why do, why do sometimes people in your network of congregations, some of them preach barefoot. Like why, like, and you all got tattoos and you guys have loud rock music playing and Mm -hmm. there's cool lights behind you. And like, 
That doesn't seem holy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's 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 a slippery slope that you know. I think it, if we get into the business of regulating dress, like I said, it's just it's it's just such a gray area, mm -hmm. and you know how we dress when we arrive at corporate worship. I think our primary goal should be: Am I stealing attention? Yes. Um, and I think there's people that you know that take it to the other extreme and they're like, I'm going to be so casual that it's distracting. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm I don't want to go there naked. either. Yeah. No, you don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I, I typically just, you know, I wear just like khakis and a button up shirt, basically just kind of like what I wear throughout the week, except maybe 10% dressier. Um, sure. Cause I don't want to come off pretentious, but at the same time, you know, I do want to be, kind of presentable but yeah i think um you know what i what i would wear to a wedding or something but yeah i don't yeah. i don't look down on someone who who dresses less um, formal than i do god forbid yeah i once had somebody ask me why i don't preach in a suit and a shirt and tie mm -hmm. and um my answer was because most of the people i minister to don't wear suits and shirts and ties ever mm-hmm mm-hmm and so if I create a culture here at our church that says you have to dress up a certain way that you normally don't dress, mm -hmm. it becomes performative when you walk in the door, right? Mm. Now, if... Yeah, there if, is like this fine balance there, yeah. Yeah, so like if I was in a place, I mean, let's just be honest, 60, 70 years ago, that is what every, everybody did own, a suit and a shirt and tie, and that is what people wore to church. There's nothing wrong with that. That's awesome. But that that's what everybody's used to, right? I mean, in the in the community that I pastor in, like throughout a given week, I mean, no one ever has a reason to dress up. And I think when most people come to church, they do dress nice, they do dress modestly, but it can become very performative where we almost think that there is some sort of an inherent spiritual value in putting on a three-piece suit. And again, there's nothing wrong with that if you feel like people are doing it for the right reason. But if you're doing it mm -hmm. just to be it, almost as a substitute for really coming with a true heart of genuine and sincere worship to the Lord, what's the point in wearing that? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You have any more gotcha questions for me, or can we move on to the questions from our no, brother Craig? No. No. Yeah, let's move on to other questions <laughs> from Craig. Okay. <laughs> I really want you to ask me gotcha questions, but apparently you're not feeling up for it. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, that's all right. Um. Let's see. Let's take this one. Is there a need for the reverence in a corporate gathering? Stained glass, ornate churches, a guy in a robe preaching. Hmm. What would you say to that? No, there isn't a need for it. Um, where is it in the book of Acts that um, there is a group Paul knew about that prayed down by... Oh, okay, it's Acts 6.13. It's Philippi. Um, Luke says, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. And we sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. 
so it's interesting because there's like this um one of the women you know Thyatira named Lydia. What's interesting is we find a group of women that are apparently having some degree of corporate worship on the side of a river uh, outside the city. So no, there's no need for that. As are those things nice? Sure. Um, I I particularly am drawn to stained glass and ornate churches. I think those are really pretty, and you know I like especially like country, old country churches like out in the countryside that are you know the old like 1800s white church you know, like a white building sure. <laughs> like with yeah. stained glass windows. <laughs> I just get what you <laughs> I gotta, to clarify for I, a second. Yeah. <laughs> I got to clarify. Yeah. I got to clarify. Right. But I, I like that, you know, I'm drawn to that. Yeah. Um, it's nothing wrong with it's really that. picturesque, it's beautiful. but yeah. no, there's, there's, there's no need for that. Um, yeah. Yeah. You don't have to have that to have a mm-hmm. church. Actually, what's interesting is uh, before Constantine came into power and Christianity became the official state religion of Rome, most Christians would have met either in homes or if there was an especially tolerant city, they might have rented a room and mm-hmm. they would have had their gatherings and they would have had their love, the love feast, the agape feast, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so they wouldn't have had these ornate, massive buildings. So where did those come from? Well, after Constantine um, made Christianity the religion of the state, all of the pagan temples of Rome were converted into basilicas and cathedrals and churches. So those buildings were redeemed and dedicated to the worship of Christ, which, praise God, that's amazing. But I think there comes a point in history where people start to think that unless worship of Christ is happening in a building like that, it's somehow not reverential. It's somehow not sacred. It's somehow disrespectful, which is interesting Mm. because that's not at all how the early Christians would have viewed corporate worship. It wouldn't have happened in one of those places. That was a a Mm. remnant of pagan Rome. That wasn't a remnant of early Christian practice. So it's kind of interesting. So Gabe, why do you think a lot of modern Protestant churches have moved away from traditional church format? Uh... That's a really good question. Probably, you know, every church and every denomination may have different motivations, but a couple big ones that I see is maybe a knee-jerk reaction to the abuses within a lot of higher church traditions. Hmm. So they're kind of just wanting to move completely away from that and abolish all of that and kind of just say, we're just simple, we're doing things kind of just spirit-led. And I would say... What was the second reason? I forget my second reason. <laughs> <laughs> I had a good second reason, but um, oh yeah, my second reason was to draw more people in. I think there's this thought process mm. that goes if if you have a more relevant church service or uh, you know more more uh, whatever the fill in the blank accessible that maybe. more yeah that more people yeah. will come, and that's not necessarily a bad bad motivation. If it's your only motivation, I would say that's not a good thing, but. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think those are two big factors to, to to get away from the abuses and kind of the kind of the quagmire of of traditional higher um, denominations, and then to make it more accessible and relevant to people who are seeking. Yeah, no, I I think I'd agree with you hundred percent. Yeah. Um, 
he asked the question, what, what can we learn from our brothers and sisters in the Messianic faith? And I said, not a darn thing. So I don't know how you answered <laughs> that, Gabe. <laughs> what do you think mm. that someone who is not in the Messianic tradition, like what, what kind of things do you think that, you know, your, your tradition and, uh, mm. you know, folks that are Messianic believers, what can they offer the church at large? Man, that's a tough question. I think I think the biggest thing. I mean, there's probably a lot of things they can offer, but I think the biggest thing is putting Jesus back in his proper context, um, mm. at historical and religious context, yeah. and, and his teachings. Um, I think it's probably the biggest thing that the Messianic world has to offer. Uh, any Messianic rabbi can can do a good job, hopefully, of expounding upon that. But yeah, there's a lot of great resources and books and teachings out there you can find about. Um, Jesus's proper Jewish context. Um, Is there anyone you'd recommend from somebody that wants to study more about Jesus hmm. as as Jewish? Hmm. Uh, I think, let me get back to you on that. Okay. It's uh, some good some good entry level books. Let me yeah. Let me get back to you on that. Okay. Um, There's one written by a lady from Vanderbilt Divinity School, and I think it's called The Forgotten Jew. There's one I've read years and years ago. I just had to look it up here on Amazon. Um, but it's what every Christian needs to know about the Jewishness of Jesus. A way, okay. a new way of seeing the most influential rabbi in history, written by Rabbi Evan Moffick. Um, okay. It's interesting, hmm. but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh, let's jump to another question. Sure. Um, let's see. Are we prioritizing our practices to be God-centered and honoring, such as many folks, including myself, will adhere to a small group more frequently than the Sabbath? Hmm. So how would you respond to that question? I guess I don't fully understand the question. Uh, I'm not sure I do either. Yeah. Are we prioritizing our practices to be God-centered or honoring? I guess they're, they're basically asking, like, hey, do we have spiritual disciplines in our lives hmm. that are more grounded in Scripture than they are just like religious activity. Like, well, you got to be a small group, yeah. but then some of us go, but yeah, I'm not really honoring the Sabbath. Yeah. And yet yeah. one of those is a biblical command and one of those is more of a cultural. I see. Yeah. So that's yeah. kind of an individual <clears throat> question. I don't, I don't know. I mean, um, that's a really good question to continually ask yourself, Craig, if you are prioritizing certain practices that are, you know, they might be good practices, but they're mandated, you know, by the church or implemented by the church or your church, um, if you're doing it to the exclusion of things that are mandated in, in the Bible, then yeah, I think you should constantly be auditing uh, your life and, and what you're doing. And hmm. yeah, I think we can get so caught up and busy in just church functions and events and things that we forget to just feed our own selves the word of God um, on a daily basis or forget to have those quiet times of meditation or, you know, just whatever the case may be. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely a, a danger that's out there. Yeah. Um, I'd like to tell people at our newcomers class the most horrible thing that could ever happen is they come to a next class. That's what we call our, you know, our new new members or new, you know, newcomers class. Is they come to a next class and they think that religious activity is the answer for them being made right with God. Mm -hmm. Um, and unfortunately, I don't think we mean to, but sometimes that's that's sometimes what we offer people mm -hmm. that are looking for God is religious activity. Hmm. Just get really involved in religious activity and then you're going to be made right with God. And it's like, nah, we got to be willing to <laughs> un 
understand our spiritual practices and disciplines in a proper context, in a proper way. This will help you, uh, put you in a position to connect with God, but that's not a substitute for actually following the Lord and seeking him and being made right with him through his son, Jesus. So, Hmm. um, how should Christians observe or approach traditions adhered to by the Jewish community, like Passover, Sukkot, etc.? That's a very deep question. Uh, How should Christians observe or approach tradition? So, personally, it's it's my my understanding, um, Passover and Sukkot and all these other biblical feasts, um, these are things that Jesus did throughout his entire life and uh, overlaid additional significance on top of each of these holy days. Uh, for instance, like he died on Passover, he rose on the Feast of First Fruits, he poured out the Holy Spirit on the Feast of Weeks, or uh, Pentecost, it's also called. Um, I believe that he will do that again with the what we call the Fall Feasts, where there's the Feast of Trumpets, there's the Day of Atonement, then there's the Feast of Sukkot, or Feast of Tabernacles, and then Hanukkah is the other one. And there's some other minor ones that fall, like Purim, for instance. I fall in between there, but yeah, I think Christians have a lot to gain from, at a very minimum, studying these and knowing about these holy days, but um, maybe even implementing them into their life to some extent as a way of better connecting with our Savior who did them all his life, but also overlaid additional meaning on top of them. Um, I would say, too, uh, things like Sukkot, there seems to be evidence the Feast of Tabernacles, that those will be things that would be a required feast day for uh, leaders of the nations during the millennial reign of Christ to come up and celebrate Sukkot during hmm. the millennial reign. It's, it's Zechariah 14. They won't actually won't receive any rain on their land if they don't. So, oh, interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, things huh. like that. So it seems like some of those things have a continuation, at least even into the Messianic era, Messianic hmm. reign, and... Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot to be gained from that. Uh, you just got to be careful that you don't neglect your first love, right? And and um, go too far into the the Orthodox Jewish world of you know keeping thousands and thousands of different laws and and commandments that are associated with that but aren't necessarily biblical, and don't beautify your relationship with Christ by observing hmm. all those things. So I think keeping Him in the forefront of what you're doing and why you're doing it is really important. Yeah, that's well said, and and I think that's probably a good. Uh, that's a good practice, no matter the tradition that you might find yourself in, whether it's the Messianic mm-hmm. Jewish tradition or, you know, maybe you're in a more liturgical church. So um, <clears throat> I have friends that attend Orthodox churches, like a Greek Orthodox church or even an Eastern Orthodox church, and some of those traditions are beautiful and rich and amazing, but if those things become more important to you than actually what they're intended to point to. And that is Christ and what he's come to do. Mm-hmm. Then, then you're in a, you're in a bad spot. It should never be yeah. about that stuff. Right. Yep. Uh, you want to take one more question? Sure. Yeah. If we have time. Okay. Let's see. How should Gentile Christians view Judaism and Messianic Judaism? That's kind of connected to the last one. Hmm. Yeah. Do, you, do you want to do that one or do you want another one? Is that one good or what? Uh, yeah, we could try. I mean, how should Gentile Christians view Judaism or Messianic Judaism? 
Um, hmm, that is a tough one. So uh, I think they should kind of almost view it as their their roots in a way. Um, hmm. Although every Messianic congregation is is kind of different, but there is a lot of similarity. Right. Um, yeah, I would like for every Gentile Christian to look at the Messianic movement and see uh and see these are god honoring christ following uh jews and non-jews who are making a, a concerted effort to get back to what the faith looked like looked like in the first century and hopefully that's hmm. what they see and not not other weird stuff <laughs> that people right. you know there is some weird <laughs> stuff out there so yeah, yeah that's what that's i in hope. every church um, though yeah 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 exactly and you know adjectives are adjectives um really you know it's at the end of the day um the kingdom of god is going to be made up of people of all all traditions and all all ethnicities um i think sometimes we get really hung up on on adjectives but i fully believe even though you know people like cory tenboom never heard of messianic judaism her entire life is going to have a very honored place in the kingdom and um hmm. yeah so I, I i hope that people view view messianic judaism in a positive light and are maybe curious about it, maybe want to read some books about it. I think you would, you would hopefully, um, I believe, be, your relationship with Christ would be beautified because of it. But at the same time, um, yeah, just be careful. Don't get don't get hung up in the weeds. And there is some some odd stuff out there. But yeah, those are yeah. good questions from from old Craig. Craig. I wonder if Craig appreciates appreciates me calling him old Craig. Probably old not. Craig. <laughs> yeah. I'm old Craig. I yeah, feel like we're on that level not. now. But yeah, yeah, Craig, if you so. have any more questions, just feel free to shoot me an email and maybe Josh can forward it over to me. But hopefully yeah. I did a, a, a good job answering what you had so far. I think you did, Gabe. Good, good. Can I tell you a funny story before we go sure. about one time me trying to pay a pastor a compliment? Mm-hmm. So this one oh, time yeah. I went to a funeral for a member of our church Um that member's mother had passed away. And so they were doing a funeral for this particular um, person at another church in another town. And so I went to this funeral. It was a really lovely funeral. Uh, The pastor that got up and shared just, he just shared some really, really sweet things. He was kind of an older guy in a more, um, you know, traditional Pentecostal church. But I mean, he, he just shared some really, really sweet things. It was just really good. And then went to the graveside service and his port of the graveside service was really good. So I'm a young pastor. I'm kind of figuring stuff out. And I decided I'm going to go up to this older ancient guy and give him a compliment, you know? Hmm. And I walked up to him and I just said, pastor, I, I was really touched by you sharing. I, I thought that was a really good service. And he just looked at me and said, I think so. Yes, it was. I think so. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, oh, okay. Um, yeah. All right. And he goes, yeah. And so it was just kind of funny because it was like, I was just trying to share you a compliment. And I I wonder if it was his way of kind of, you know, deflecting it away from himself just towards the service in general. That it, mm-hmm. it, it everything everything ended up okay, you know. Yeah. But I don't think I he think understood so. I was trying to pay him a compliment. But So when people come up to you and try to compliment you, like, and they say, that was a really good sermon or thank you for saying what you said. I'm what just going to say, I think so, is, yes. Yeah, yeah. I was about to say, what is what is your typical response? Do you say thank you, or do you say, or do you oh, like self-deprecate? <laughs> what do you do? 
Man, uh, I used to be really bad at just going, oh, it's all the Lord. It's not me. Yeah. I'm just his chosen vessel. Um, but uh, I think it was it was D. Rutt, Dr. Rutland, that kind of taught me, you know, just say thank you and move on. Mm. Yeah. Just say thank you for sharing. That's very kind of you. Yeah. And move on. Yeah. yeah. You know. So, yeah, I think that's a lot more humble of a response than saying, I'm just a chosen vessel of the Lord. Make it yeah. weird, you know. Almost like a compliment baiting or something. Yeah, exactly. For for the person to go, no, 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 but you you did good too, right? And you're, oh no, oh, alas, you know, <laughs> that's not really humble. So, what about you? What do you say? Yeah, just do you say all oh, shucks you. and look at your shoes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like do a little flexing. No, I yeah. usually just say thank you. That really means a lot. That's what I yeah, say. Yeah, that's a good line. I like that. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well. Thanks, Craig, for the question. And anybody else that has any future questions, we love questions from our listeners and our viewers. Sometimes we will email you back. Sometimes we'll do a whole podcast about your question. Either Mm. way, you win, hopefully. So, yeah, send us an email, beardsandbiblepodcast at gmail.com. Leave us a YouTube comment, and uh, we will see you guys next time. Go check out those other Beards and Bible podcasts. Yeah. All right, see you. Well, thanks for listening. That's our show. If you like what you've heard, make sure to give us a share, leave us a review, or send us an email at beardsandbiblepodcast at gmail.com.